are there many uh, black people involved in machining as far as you know? Yeah, plenty. Plenty, I would say. It's much in line with the demography of the whole country. I uh, think if you asked how many black people are the owner of machining businesses, that would be definitely skewed. I mean, they, they do exist, but they te- those would tend to be more whites, Indians, coloreds. But I mean, things are changing. This is Swarfcast. I'm Noah Graff, here with my co-host Lloyd Graff. On today's show, we're talking about the machining business in South Africa. Our guest is Peter Frau. Peter has been immersed in the machining business and been a participant in the social change of South Africa over the last 50 years. While so many of his countrymen emigrated, he stayed and has recently started a business building a new machine tool in South Africa. As a used machine tool dealer specializing in high production equipment, I've encountered plenty of fire damaged machines. An average fire costs a business $300,000 to $500,000 and six to eight weeks of lost production time. Installed on over 15,000 CNC machines, FireTrace protects shops running oil-based coolants by automatically detecting and suppressing fires within seconds. FireTrace systems are safe for people and machines because they use clean agents that leave no residue. The systems are compatible with all major machinery brands and can be installed within a few hours. For more details, go to www.firetrace.com slash swarfcast. That's www.firetrace.com slash swarfcast. I am honored to be with Peter Frau, co-owner and CEO of Fast Machine Tools in Durban, South Africa. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, Peter. It's, it's good to have you. The honor is mine. Uh, delighted to be able to participate in this podcast. Yeah, yeah. And we're also here with Lloyd, my dad. Always awesome. So I met Peter a couple of years ago. He came to Chicago you were looking at a, at a small Acme or something? Yeah, it was, um, I was on behalf of a customer that, uh, in fact, didn't come to anything. Uh, I was there partly actually just to, uh, to meet my grandson who was checking into college there. Oh, uh, right. Chicago. This is really cool that we get to talk uh, about South Africa and machining. I think on most people's minds in the United States, they're not even thinking about South Africa and they're not even really, and they're definitely not thinking about South Africa and machining. So Peter has been around this business for a long time. So first, Peter, I want you to give a little bit of background about your companies. You've got a a startup and uh, another company that's tooling up machines. So let's get a little bit about that. And then I want to know how you got into machining. Then we're going to just learn about South Africa and the industrial machining world over there. So give me the scoop. So your, your other company is Rainfeld? Renfield, yeah. R-E-N-F-I-E-L-D, Renfield Machine Tools. Okay. So Renfield Machine Tools, when did you start that? I started that in 1991. Okay. It's actually uh, an operation a, a little bit like uh, Graf Pinkett in that uh, we 
we you set up to to re recondition and tool up what what you would call screw machines. Uh, we 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 tend to call them cam automatics here, yeah? mm -hmm. uh, both single spindles and multi spindles, and. Um, and so that's what we did. We'd, 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 buy, uh, we'd buy machines in where we could find them at dark corners. <laughs> and uh, Treasure hunters. And tool them up. And, and uh, so all our contracts were turnkey uh, projects where, uh, where the uh, customer received a machine which is producing his components. I see. So, so not unlike Graf Pinkett, actually. Right, uh, right. So that's Renfield that's machine tools, which still which still exists, and we still do some of that work. Although we broadened out and do a lot of other uh, bespoke machines of different kinds. Good. Well, these days you have to diversify because yeah, a lot of these customers that have been running the multi spindles are now they're diversifying. So we yeah, you know, have to get more versatile and. Okay, so meanwhile you're doing that, and now you have a new company, a startup, yeah, different technology. Give us the scoop on that. Yeah, well, when, just in the course of of uh, doing that work, and also prior to that, I'd run a, a production company uh, for nine years, just running cam machines, uh -huh. uh, both singles and multis. Uh, so for nine years, just making widgets by the hundreds of thousands for the motor industry and, and all sorts of industries. So, so I had a pretty good grounding in the repetition turning uh, business. And then, of course, the rebuilding various types of machines, you get to familiar with, with the strengths and weaknesses of each. And what struck me was that uh, cam machines tended to have fast cycle times but were not user-friendly. And uh, CNC lathes, which had started to come on, onto the scene in about 65, I suppose, uh, were very user friendly, but generally were didn't have quick cycle times because they only had one two working on the workpiece at a time. Um, so that put me on a search for a holy grail of a of a machine which had the fast cycle times of a cam machine, the user friendliness of a CNC uh, at a price that you could afford. And so that that was what gave rise to to the startup, which is Fast Machine Tools. And is there anything like this machine? I know you have to tell us exactly the the specs of it, but is there anything like this somewhere uh, else in the world? Yeah, no. You can you can buy uh, other machines with a similar spec. Mm -hmm. uh, they generally there's they, quite a lot of manufacturers um, make them, but the the difference is we've managed to 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 contain the price. We managed to get the price way down, so it's typically about half the price mm -hmm. so uh, it's, of what, what you'd pay for a, for another machine. So it's it's kind of like a partial Swiss machine. Yeah, it's like a it's like a Swiss machine, but it has a fixed headstock. Okay. And uh, so it's it's got uh, it's it's got a, a an eight station turret which moves in two axes. It's got a dedicated turning slide which moves in two axes. It's got a dedicated forming slide and a dedicated uh, parting slide, so so you can have four tools working simultaneously uh, uh, on the workpiece, and and so it's it's kind of like a, a, a screw machine in that regard. So that's mm -hmm. how you get your cycle times down. You have uh, lots of things happening simultaneously. And you are seventy-five years old. 
That's correct. 75 years young. 75 years young. About the same age as, as, as Lloyd, is that right? We are the same age. Absolutely. Uh, it, was this 19, 1944? Was, was it vintage year? <laughs> you could say that. The end of World War II yeah. or getting close to it. That, that's right. Yeah, yeah. How does it feel to have a startup at the age of 75? It makes me think kind of of, uh, you know, Kentucky Fried Chicken, Colonel Sanders. He started that company when he was in (laughs) his 70s or something, maybe late 60s. Yeah, I I think, you know, as I was saying. It's exactly the same. (laughs) Both both, uh, yourself, Lloyd, and and myself, we've been blessed with good brains. They're still, still functioning well. We've got a responsibility to use them. So I don't really, um, you know, think too much about my age. There's just too much interesting stuff to do still. So I just keep doing it, you know. <laughs> Depends on how I'm feeling in the morning. <laughs> let's um, let's get a little bit of a quick background, um, further a little back on you, Peter, and I think that'll give a little bit more of a of a look into South Africa and business there, et cetera. So you come from a, a background, a family background in machining, yes? Well, I come from a, an engineering background. So, so my, uh, my father was uh, an engineer in, a, in a, a power utility in South Africa. And, um, and then I also did a mechanical engineering degree uh, at the a university in Durban, and also joined the same power utility. It's called Eskom. Uh, it's, it's it's a major supplier, electricity supplier in South Africa. It's a parastatal. And uh, yeah, I worked there for uh, some seven years working on power plants, hmm. and uh, ended up involved um, um, mostly in instrumentation and then on, on com- uh, online computers. I actually trained in the states around San Diego for eight months writing software for the first computers that were going into power plants to monitor the plant. Interesting. And uh, then uh, I ended up uh, being promoted as a senior engineer in in Eskim up to the head office, which is in Johannesburg. And uh, both my wife and I decided we didn't didn't want to spend the rest of our days in Johannesburg. (laughs) It's a great big sprawling metropolis and we had lived there for a couple of years on and off hmm. so we wanted very much to get back to the coast uh, which is where i'd grown up and so uh, that ended up bringing about a career change because i i'd gotten to kind of a specialized software online real-time field and i couldn't get a job uh, down here in durban so um my dad had this little business running some cam machines, making valve guards, actually, automotive valve guards and other things. And I, I joined him kind of with a temporary, he gave me a, a, like a three or four months project to work on just so I could get down here and look for a job. In Durban. In Durban, yeah. And then I, I just kind of got, got interested in, in manufacturing. So it was like a, a career change, which I hadn't planned. Mm. And uh, then gradually, my, my dad and I grew, grew that business to, to a fair size. We had, at the, I think we had about 24 single spindles, a couple of multis, and a whole lot of, a whole lot of uh, second operation machines, scentless grinders, and so on. What period of time was this? 
that would that was uh, uh, seventy three, so seventy three to about eighty two, okay. nine, nine years I was in that game, and so so that's where I really got my background in in uh, in in you know mass production of ten parts. And, you know, you're always, uh, you're in that jobbing environment. You're always trying to put your wits against against the competition to, you know, get a clever cycle time and a cuter way of doing something. So, but then um, I, I was out of the business altogether for about seven years um, doing a, a lot of um, Reconciliation work, both uh, within the church context and also in a political context. Okay, so so let's stop here. So this is around 1990, yes? No, that would be in about 1982, uh, 1983 to um, about 1990. There, thereabouts was about seven years. All right, so now we need to rewind things. I need to know, we need to know the Cliff Notes version. I don't know if you know Cliff Notes, but we need to know the the quick version of apartheid in South Africa because this is related to what you were doing, the reconciliation, and, and it's totally related to other questions I have about machining there. So give us the scoop on the history of the country in like maybe three to five minutes. As far as as far as apartheid, did I say that right? Apartheid. Yeah, it's a, the correct pronunciation is actually apartheid. 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 Yeah, in in nineteen forty eight, um, the the nationalist party came into power, and one needs to know that the South African population is comprised of four broad um, population groups. I suppose you'd say uh, blacks, whites, Indians. And, and people of mixed race who are termed coloreds, although that doesn't have a, uh, any sort of pejorative overtones, that term. Mm-hmm. And amongst the whites, they're divided into English-speaking whites and Afrikaans-speaking whites. Okay? So the, the English-speaking whites, of which I'm one, have generally um, their, their ancestors hailed from England whereas the, the Afrikaans, uh, and Afrikaans is a Dutch derivative, they hail from uh, both Holland and France. Okay. The, do, they, do they all speak English now, though, at least the Afrikaans? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, it would be unusual for someone not to speak uh, English uh, reasonably. English is, is a lingua franca uh, in, in South Africa for, for everyone, actually. That would make sense. So, uh, and... and uh, Afrikaans-speaking people tend to be very bilingual. English-speaking people, not not so much. So, so I, I speak English and Afrikaans reasonably well, not not super fluent, but reasonably well. Okay, so you have the there's four groups of people. 1948, the the Afrikaans come to power. The Afrikaans come to power, and they proceeded to to. Uh, implement this policy of apartheid, which is basically apartheid quite literally means uh, apartness or separation. So it was a policy in which uh, the, the different race groups were, were grouped into separate geographical areas. The, the whites controlled the economy, they, they controlled the, the, the majority of the land areas, uh, the, the cities, 
and and the uh, it was only the whites who had the franchise, mm-hmm. and the whites uh, comprised only around about twenty percent of the population at that stage. So it was a it was a very uh, unjust situation which couldn't last. But they were able to make it last for a while. They made it last for about uh, forty years, but it, it got uh, tougher and tougher. Uh, there was uh, there was economic sanctions on the on the country, and um, the you know the, the the blacks, particularly who were totally disenfranchised, uh, they you know just mounted a, uh, what was known as the struggle, uh, mm-hmm. and a lot of resistance groups, many of them based outside of South Africa, and uh, so the, the nationalist government just just banned all opposition parties, apart from white parties. And so it was really a, it was a powder keg waiting to explode. In, in the late uh, 80s, um, uh, a new prime minister came into power, a man called uh, F.W. de Klerk. And he was, he realized that this was just uh, absolute uh, disaster waiting to happen. Mm-hmm. So he proceeded to uh, release Mr. Nelson, Nelson Mandela and... Uh, who had been incarcerated for some 26 years, uh, plus a number of other um, um, political prisoners, and he unbanned all the political parties, and uh, then um, embarked on a process of of negotiating a new constitution, uh, which which came into force with the first election in 1994. So it was an absolute milestone and the transition was uh, was not without violence, but it was relatively peaceful. And the actual voting in 1994 was totally peaceful. So it was it was quite miraculous, actually. Um, and uh, so Mr. Mandela was the first um, uh, prime minister in in, uh, um, in 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 the non-racial, democratically re- elected government. So in the late 80s, things are changing. You were, you had this machining business and then you're also a minister? No, I'm not a minister, but I'm I'm an active, uh, I'll term it a very active layman in my church, which is, um, it's the Methodist church, which is, uh, I guess, somewhat akin to the um, United Methodist Church in, in America, but but a little different, it's kind of an African version, if you like. Okay. So yeah, so I mean, I, I'm a, I'm an accredited preacher. I've been involved in various leadership positions. I, I, at the moment, I sit on a a, a doctrine and ethics com- commission for the whole of Southern Africa. Oh wow! So there's the de Klerk comes in, starts making changes, and then you had this machining company. Um, and you kind of took took some time off to be part of this movement, correct? Uh, no, the chronology is not quite like that. I, okay. I left uh, what was the uh, you know my, what was the family. It was a family business. It was my dad's business, really. I left that in about eighty um, three, uh, whereas Mandela was only released in eighty nine. But I was involved in various community upliftment projects, and I say doing reconciliation work, and and sort of under the under the radar reconciliation work involving political 
figures as well. We just we just kind of get guys who who, who claim to be Christians uh, but were high profile figures, and just just got them around a, a you know a, a table with a cup of coffee and a plate of sandwiches and get them getting them to talk. So I was really much under the radar stuff, and in a way. It was a microcosm of what happened between de Klerk and, and Mandela because what happened was that they formed a close relationship bond. While he was in prison? Well, it started while he was in prison, uh, but then it continued once he'd been released uh, because it was, it was quite a gap between his release. It was about five years, of course, between his release and that, that first democratic election. Okay. So de Klerk was just the president for a long time or prime minister? Uh, he was probably president for about 10 years, I think. So there's no term limits. There are limits, but both, both de Klerk and Mandela won the Nobel Peace Prize. They both won the Peace Prize because in a way, uh, you know, they both contributed to the transition because Mandela, of course, uh, Interesting. You know, de Klerk had to lay down his power um, and, uh, you know, and, and which he did in a nonviolent way. It was quite remarkable. Amazing time. May I ask, Peter, if you ever gave serious thought to leaving South Africa? Yeah, uh, it's a good question, Lloyd, because, of course, um, many, many whites uh, did, did emigrate, uh, you know, during the 80s for, for fear of what was what might happen, in fact, what would probably happen, um, for fear of what the country would look like once uh, an, an ANC government came to power. So there was a, it was quite a massive um, exodus, uh, particularly of, of, of qualified people, um, you know, doctors and so on, uh, to mainly to New Zealand, Australia, England, Canada, and some to the states, but as as for myself um, and my wife, we we never seriously considered that. Um, I, I just have a conviction: this is where I'm meant to be. Uh, actually, uh, actually, how how can I say that? South Africa is a is a a very complex. Yeah. country with its different people groups, and of course, you can't just talk about black. South Africans, because there are several tribes. Uh, there are 11 official languages. And so, wow. so it's complex, but it's also colorful. Uh, and I enjoy, <laughs> I enjoy the, the different peoples uh, in, in, our, in our country. So, I mean, in a way, it's, it has a kinship to America because America is very multicultural. Sure. Um, so, so yeah, it's a bit of a long answer to your question, Lloyd. But, but no, I, I'm very, very happy to uh, to to be a citizen of of South Africa. Um, of course, we've got a son who stays in America, and we're very happy about that. He's a he's actually holds dual citizenship. Uh, he's a U.S. citizen, but he retains his South African citizenship, and he's very proud of that. And so uh, we've yeah we've never had a, an urge to to emigrate. Um, do many, do many South Africans wish they could, uh, emigrate? Yeah, I, I think they do. Uh, and, and many have, uh, and it's, it's, uh, it's kind of varied, you know, I think, um, 
South Africa's fortunes and economy have been up and down a bit like a, a roller coaster. So that a season when the economy really boomed, uh, in that was probably just around the turn of the century. Uh, the economy was really doing very well. Uh, then, unfortunately, we had a very bad president for nine years, uh, Mr. Jacob Zuma, who did a huge damage to the country, to the economy. He was a very corrupt man. Um, and we've got a good president now, but he's, he's, uh, he's struggling to dig the, dig the economy out of a hole. Right. And I'm sure it's in a big hole now with the pandemic. The, the pandemic doesn't help at all there. So, um, so again, sorry, Lloyd, a bit of a long answer, but yes, a lot of, a lot of, um, I'm speaking of whites now who, who contemplate immigration. Some would like to, and, and can't easily, some give it a try and then come back. What about black people? Do many black people want to emigrate or do emigrate? Not, not so much, not so much, you know. Is it because uh, they don't have the resources or because they don't really want to? Both. Well, I think there's I think there's good opportunities for for blacks. Although the unemployment level is high, there are quite um, strong uh, black empowerment protocols in place, like affirmative action. Yeah, that's right. And and so um, you know the playing field has is uh, which used to slope steeply in favour of whites now now slopes the other way. And so um, I think it's it's more the more the old whiteies who, who kind of think hey, maybe we we the grass is greener somewhere else. <laughs> um, certainly, the percentage of whites has has steadily dropped over the years. It used to be about uh, over twenty percent. Mm-hmm. It's now down around nine percent. Nine percent is white white people, both British and Afrikaans. That's right. Yeah. I'm curious where, whether the uh, dramatic rise in the price of precious metals has improved the economy significantly in South Africa recently. Well, yes, it has to be a good thing because uh, a, a lot of, um, so, you know, a, a good sector of South Africa's economy is on mining. Uh, so it's the country's blessed with 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 minerals. Um, it's got you know, plenty of gold, platinum, chrome, aluminium, iron, diamonds, uh, and, a, and a whole bunch more. And yeah, diamonds, of course. Um, so so yeah, our commodity price, an increase in commodity prices, has to be good. Um, it's it's good for the, good for the gold price. It's good for the gold mining industry, of course. You know so. Does that filter down to your business at all? Um, Lloyd, it's, it's, it's difficult to say. You know, the trouble is my business is like yours. When you sell capital goods, if you make a good sale, you think the economy is booming. Exactly. If you don't, you think it's in a recession. Um, but um, so a better barometer, really, it would be like how the steel merchants and the heat treatment guys doing you know those those guys are are a better barometer of the economy um so so i look i mean if the economy does well all businesses do better right uh, you know and so it, it 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 does affect my business but 
at the moment, I mean, we we we've been just completing what for us is quite a big contract, which has carried us right through. No, oh, that's good. This COVID period, uh, which is great, and I'm hoping as a result of this podcast, that's going to help business to boom. So who knows? Well, it should. I mean, we've already talked to people who have gotten inquiries from their podcasts. Looking for a screw machine, rotary transfer machine, or CNC machine? Graf Pinkert's got you covered. When you're buying any used machine, you're taking a risk. So it's important to buy from someone who knows their stuff and who is going to give you straight information about what you're buying. Graf Pinkert is a family-owned firm that's been dedicated to selling great machine tools to the turn parts industry for 75 years. It specializes in the top multi-spindle brands, including Index, Schutte, Gildemeister, Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. They also sell a variety of other types of used equipment, such as CNC Swiss, CNC turning centers, and parts washers. Machine tools are complicated. If you're going to buy one, you should go to people who are knowledgeable and committed to the industry. Learn more at www.graffpinkert.com. That's www.graffpinkert.com. Are there many uh, black people or colored people involved in machining, as far as you know? Uh, yeah, plenty. Uh, plenty, I would say. It's, it's, it's really pretty much in line with the demography of the whole country. Uh, I think if you asked uh, how many black people are the owner of machining businesses, mm-hmm. that, that would be definitely skewed. Uh, I mean, they they do exist, but they te- those would tend to be more. Uh, the ownership would tend to be perhaps more in whites, Indians, coloreds. But I mean, things are changing. There's a shift. What's the income disparity in the country? Is there? Hu- I mean, are there like just crazy dirt poor people and super rich people? Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. Uh, it's it's uh, the, you you get the you get the very wealthy and you get you get the very poor. Uh, and and so and, and and also culturally, there's a, there's this first world and and third world. So I mean, South African cities look pretty much like American cities. Actually, they're big motorways and and uh, it's, it's a city, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but then um, you, you go not very far, and you'll get into a rural area where where there are mud huts and and, uh, and sometimes people are having to carry. Carrying water and on buckets in their heads, you know. Um, you know, ha- having said that, it's it's very different to a country like India, where I mean, that is, that's just abject poverty you see all around you. Whereas, whereas here, um, you know, South Africa is reckoned as sort of a mecca for for people in Africa. A lot of people. Come down from Africa, from Zimbabwe and and uh, Malawi and so on, mm-hmm. uh, the Congo, and find work in South Africa. So there's there's a huge population of of uh, you know so-called aliens. Um, I, I've, I have a a very good Malawian chap work in my workforce. Interesting. Yeah. Is engineering a popular popular subject? 
I think popular would be overstating it, but it's it's certainly it's a it's a career choice that many would opt for. So, so all the South African universities, or most of them, would have an engineering faculty uh, with all the all the different branches. Every right, civil, mechanical, electrical, electronic. What about like here? Everybody complains about they can't find good people. They can't find people to work in the shops. What about there? Yeah, look, I, I think that it is true to find skilled people. I mean, that's that's really one of the reasons uh, for the for the move from cam machines mm-hmm. to to C machines because um, the cam machines require a tool setter, and he's he's making lots of little adjustments, and everything has to be right before you get good parts. Uh, and those guys are in- increasingly hard to find. This this question is going to sound kind of stupid, um, but do you live near many animals, wildlife, jungle, lions, tigers? No, tigers are Asia, right? Uh, yeah, no, that's not a stupid question at all, uh, Noah. Uh, we we actually live look. We don't. We live about twenty five miles inland from Durban in a suburban area, but we're very fortunate that we on the edge of a reserve. So we get, we do get wild animals. We get, but like antelope, buck, we get bush buck and then wild pig and so on. Uh, the, the buck actually in our garden, um, but that's a little bit unusual. Uh, we certainly don't have lions, you know, roaming down the streets of the city, but um I wouldn't have to drive very far to get to a, a game a game uh, park. Um, there's there's a, a smallish one, probably it's about thirty miles from where where I live, and then there's some sizable ones which are up the coast, uh, probably about uh, maybe two hundred miles up the coast, and uh, those would those would be real. Real bush felt with uh, with a big five and and uh, yeah so so uh, well you'll have to come and check it out both of you we'd be very very privileged to host you if you can. A couple couple more questions. What what is the typical uh, salary for somebody who works in a shop? Somebody like from the bottom to the top. I think it's it's difficult to just give a figure. Based on the, the the rand dollar exchange rate, what's what's easier really is to say, what's the standard of living mm-hmm. which someone might enjoy, uh, and I think it would be it's fairly similar. Interesting, because the the cost of living here is much lower than than in America, but the salaries are cons- you know are, are, are uh, accordingly lower. But I think, you know, people will have a, a, a three-bedroom house and a motor car and perhaps two motor cars, and a, you know. Uh, and so I'd say it's, it's somewhat, somewhat similar. What's, what's the most interesting thing that you've learned in the last week? <laughs> or um, an, an interesting thing? <laughs> well, um, this uh, this. Peace accord between Israel and the UAE is very interesting. Say that again. The peace accord between who? Between Israel and who? Israel and the United Arab Emirates. It's hot off the press. Uh, I don't read the news, so. Yeah. 
that that is a first piece of cord in 25 years. So that's interesting. So there you go. Very interesting. Okay. Well, you have a great weekend and get some good sleep. I don't know when you're going to bed, but it's uh, 10.30 your time. So appreciate it. It's been a, a real honor to to be chatting to you about this and, and keep up the good work. I think you're doing a great thing there. From today's machining world, this is a Swarfcast production. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the show and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and todaysmachiningworld.com to see extended video interviews and join our mailing list. I'm Noah Graff. My occasional co-host is Lloyd Graff. Our audio engineer is Bill Steffi. Our managing editor is Ridgely Dunn. For information on advertising or to submit an idea for a future podcast, follow the contact information on todaysmachiningworld.com.